Francine Rivers' book, The Last Sin Eater, is set in Appalachia in the 1800s and focuses on the Celtic ritual known as the Sin Eater. When Welsh immigrants came over from over to the New World, they brought with them this Celtic ritual called the Sin Eater, and the book revolves around that uh, ritual. When someone within the community died, according to this tradition, the Sin Eater would come and absolve, forgive the deceased person by eating a symbolic meal, often comprised of bread and wine, which was either set on the chest of the corpse or beside the corpse. Katie Forbes, in the book, is a young girl who feels responsible for the death of her younger sister, and she longs to be forgiven. She feels so guilt-ridden. So she seeks out the sin-eater, and she pleads with him to take her sins and forgive her. The sin-eater agrees to do the ceremony rather reluctantly, but in the end, after performing this ceremony, she feels no relief from her guilt at all. Please, she begs, you have to tell me, how do I get rid of what I've done? I wish I knew, Katie Forbes, the sin-eater screams. I wish I knew, and he leaves. Later in the story, a stranger arrives in town, and Katie meets him for the first time down by the river. He asks her why she seems so burdened. Katie tells him what she has done and why she feels such guilt. Katie, he says as he clutches a Bible, there are some sorrows so deep that only God can touch them. No mere man can take away your sins, child. You see, there's already been a sin eater, the original sin eater that the Lord God sent a long, long time ago. He was sent to take away all of our sins once and for all, and this book tells all about him. Will you tell the sin eater how sorry I am? Katie asks. Will you ask him to forgive me? And as she hugs the man of God, she asks, Does the sin eater have a name? Yes, replies the man of God. His name is Jesus. And you can tell him yourself. There's an old, old story in the Bible about a man who lived 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was born and lived on this earth. And his story illustrates the coming sin-eater. His name was Melchizedek. And we learn in Hebrews 7 that the story of Melchizedek pictures the glory of Christ. Everybody loves a good story. That's why we read books and watch movies. Stories are great, especially stories that stir our emotions, stir our hearts or our spirits. The author of Hebrews 
looks way back to the story of Melchizedek from the time of Abraham in the Old Testament. And he uses that story from long, long ago to illustrate important spiritual principles about Jesus Christ. And the first spiritual principle we see in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Christ is a priest for all time. Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now we were told in Hebrews 6 verse 20 and all the way back in chapter 5 as well that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? And what does he have to do with Jesus Christ? What does his story teach us about Christ? Well, Melchizedek shows up in an obscure little story way back in Genesis chapter 14 in the time of Abraham. Abraham's nephew Lot had chosen to go and live in the city of Sodom and Abraham had separated himself from the evil influences of Sodom and Gomorrah and lived elsewhere. Five kings formed a coalition of armies and they attacked the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They defeated the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and they took Lot and his family captive along with all of the other inhabitants of the city. When Abraham hears that Lot, his nephew, has been taken captive by these kings, he takes 318 of his own men, trained men, and they go all the way up north and they attack the coalition of the five kings and they defeat them soundly just 318 of his own servants they defeat them soundly he rescues Lot and his family and all of their possessions and they return southward to their home but on the way on the return trip after this great victory that God has given him Abraham stopped to see a priest named Melchizedek and he ate a worship meal. Melchizedek brought out a meal of bread and wine, a worship meal to the Most High God, and he ate that meal with Abraham, and Abraham made an offering to God on the altar there in Salem through Melchizedek the high priest. And Melchizedek then blessed Abraham with the blessing of the Most High God. And Abraham goes on his way, and that would be the end of the story. That's it. Little tiny story in the Old Testament. Except that Psalm 110 then picks up that story and says that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And years and years later, the author of Hebrews picks up that same story and that same theme and says that Christ is a priest, our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
here in chapter 7. Now, we learn a little bit more from chapter 7 and the author of Hebrews. Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem was the ancient city that David himself would later conquer and make his capital. Salem became the holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And Melchizedek then was the king of Jerusalem. The name Salem is a variant of the Hebrew word for shalom, peace. So he is the king of peace. And Melchizedek itself, the name, means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And we are told that he is a priest of the Most High God long before, now remember, there was even a nation of Israel. There's no nation of Israel. Abraham hasn't even, you know, he, he's not even uh, had his son Isaac yet. We don't even have anything except the promise. And here's Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. So Abraham, the father of both Jews and the Arabs, was still childless at this time, yet Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and Abraham recognized him as God's true priest in this pagan world. And that's all we know about Melchizedek. But the author of Hebrews then starts to add some items here. And he adds them from silence because the Old Testament record doesn't include any information about Melchizedek's birth or his death or his descendants or his ancestors or his mother or his father. There's no information in the Old Testament record about any of it. It's all we know. So the author of Hebrews makes six assertions about Melchizedek. These are deductions from silence because the Old Testament record doesn't tell us silent about these things. He says that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, without a birthday, without a death day, and he is made like the Son of God. Six assertions about Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews makes. What do we do with all of that? Well, there are two basic interpretations of the passage, all right? One is that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ himself. And that these are literal statements about him, that he had no father, no mother, no genealogy, no birthday, no death day, all right? That these are literal statements about him and that, that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ himself in his pre-incarnate form. In other words, this would be what we would call a theophany or more specifically, a Christophany. In the Old Testament, when God came and took on the form of a human, we call that a theophany, God manifesting himself in human form. When, the pre when Jesus Christ came and took on the form of, an old, of a human in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, for example, then that is a Christophany, Christ taking on that form. So, this would be then Christ himself to whom Abraham gave this offering. The argument is that the description of without father and mother, beginning of days, end of days, all has to point to Christ himself. The second view is that Melchizedek was simply a human being, a real human king priest who pictured Christ. 
he was a type of or a picture of the coming Christ. And I think that's the best understanding. And I'll just quickly give you my reasons. Then you can study it and do what you want with it. And we'll move on. But I think Melchizedek is a real person who pictured Christ because of these three reasons. First, I think that Melchizedek is a real person and that the author of Hebrews writes these things about him because this was a very common way for the Jewish rabbis or teachers to write and think regarding the Old Testament stories. Anything that was silent in the Old Testament record, the Jewish rabbis would write big theological volumes about it. They would make, uh, make assertions about it. For example, Philo said that Sarah, that is Abraham's wife, Sarah, was without mother. The very exact expression that's used here, that she was without mother because there is no record of her having a mother in the Old Testament. And so he went on to talk about how, how she was uh, so superior to all because she was without mother. But that's the exact same expression here. Jews didn't believe she was really without a mother. It was a theological deduction or assertion that they were common, uh, commonly employed. Now Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who were familiar with this style of writing, this style of argument, so they would understand Melchizedek to be just as real as Sarah, I think. Second, we are told both here and in Psalm 110 that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which must mean that the two are not the same. Otherwise, we would be arguing that Christ is a priest after the order of himself, which would be an odd way to express it. Third, and most important, the text clearly says that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. He was made like the Son of God. He was made to be similar to the Son of God, which means that he is not the Son of God. Melchizedek is like the Son of God. So I think that Melchizedek is a real human king-priest who lived in the city of Salem, later Jerusalem, and became or was made to be a great picture of Jesus Christ as our high priest. Notice something very important here. Christ, or Melchizedek, was made like Christ. Christ was not made like Melchizedek. Did you catch that? Melchizedek is designed by God to be like Christ. Christ is not designed by God to be like Melchizedek. Once again, in the book of Hebrews, over and over again, we're going to see that the earthly forms that he refers to are made like a heavenly reality. Right? So Melchizedek was designed to be a picture of a real person, Jesus Christ, the heavenly reality. He was made like Christ. God planned for Melchizedek to picture Jesus Christ 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was even born in this world. God knows what he is doing, you see. It is all designed by God. He can orchestrate history and the people of history to illustrate theology far in advance of all that happens. So the Old Testament predicts 
and pictures Christ before Christ came to this earth because God is the one who orchestrates all of those details and all that happens in life. God is in charge and we can trust Him to know how to work out all the details of our lives if He can work out the details of these lives so that they picture what He wants to accomplish 2,000 years later. That's a very important theological concept to grasp. Now, the simple sentence in the Greek is found in the opening of verse 1 and the closing of verse 3. It is simply this, Melchizedek remains a priest perpetually. Melchizedek remains a priest perpetually or continuously. Melchizedek never stopped being the head of the priesthood even after Israel came into existence and Aaron and the Levites began to lead the new nation. There is a priesthood then, and this is, this is his whole argument, because he is going to say and develop throughout the rest of chapter 7 here that there is a priesthood that predates the Jewish priesthood. All right? comes long before the Jewish priesthood, and that is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And Jesus Christ is not a priest after the Jewish priesthood, after the Levitical order. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which predates all Judaism. So, he is a priest perpetually for all time. Secondly, then, Christ is a priest for all people. Christ is a priest for all people. Look at verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Literally, the expression pictures they, they mounded up the spoils and the very top of the spoils was given as the tenth or the tithe. All right? So, Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. When he came back to Salem, he gave him a tithe to Melchizedek. And those, indeed, of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have a commandment in the law to collect a tithe or a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is, the Levites, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. And then verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So who's greater, Melchizedek or Abraham? Well, Melchizedek is greater, for Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, and the Levites then under Abraham also paid tithe to Melchizedek. Understand this, the Jewish people loved Abraham. They were loyal to the priesthood of Levi. They thought that their patriarch Abraham, the father of the chosen people, was greater than all other figures in human history. For he was the father of their nation. They thought that the Levitical priesthood was superior to all other priesthoods. The Jewish ways were the best ways. Remember, he's writing to Jews here. He's writing to the Hebrews. Hebrews is written to point out that Christ and Christ's ways are better than the Jewish ways, the Jewish traditions and rituals. 
and Christ's priesthood is superior to the Jewish priesthood for it predated even the existence of the Jewish priesthood. Now, the argument in these verses is simple. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and the lesser pays to the greater. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood from this, for the same reason. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which predates and is superior to the order of Levi and the priesthood of the Jews. Historically, by the way, the Jews, the Jewish rabbis, have had a very difficult time with the story of Melchizedek. Why? For that very reason. Mel Abraham, their patriarch, pays tithes to the head of a pagan city in Canaan. And the Jewish rabbis have always had a very difficult time to explain, struggled to explain how Abraham could pay tithes to Melchizedek, and yet Abraham is the father of the chosen people. Some Jewish writers went so far as to argue, for example, in order to make it feel better, that Melchizedek was really Noah's son, Shem so that it would feel better because now he would be Abraham's father, really, or great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or something. Shem was Melchizedek, according to many Jewish writers. Shem, by the way, survived the flood by 500 years, according to Genesis 11.11, and so, in Jewish chronology, actually overlapped the life of Abraham. By this argument, Shem or Melchizedek was a priest and Abraham acknowledged his supremacy as the son of Noah himself. That was one explanation that Jewish rabbis gave. Well, the author of Hebrews will have none of that kind of thinking. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so Christ and his priesthood are superior to Abraham, Levi, and the Jewish priesthood and that's his argument in this whole chapter. However, we should also remember that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, is he? He's also the father of the Arabs. Jew, Arab. The Arabs look to Abraham as their patriarch as well. They venerate Abraham very, very highly. The Muslim world does. Yet here we are told that Christ is superior to Abraham. So what does that tell us? For both Jew and Arab, the argument is that Jesus Christ is superior. You can come to Jesus Christ, who is greater than even the patriarch Abraham. The Jews and the, Abraham, and the, the Arabs saw Abraham as the one with the promises of God, as we're told here. They followed Abraham as their exclusive father who held the key to the promises of God. Christians point out that Christ, Christ's priesthood predates Abraham, so Christ is greater than the father of both the Jews and the Arabs. Come to Christ. Christ is a priest for all people, not just Jews, not just Arabs. He is the key to the promise of God through Abraham. God told Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, in the very Abrahamic covenant, in the very Abrahamic promise about his descendants, God told Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the families 
of the earth shall be blessed. There was a universal aspect to the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Jewish nation tended not to emphasize that universal aspect. You see, God never intended that this be limited to a simple single nation or ethnic group. Why? In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Where? In Jesus Christ. You see. He is a universal priest. He is a priest for all peoples. He intended that both Jews and Arabs find their hope in the promise that was greater than either one. And in fact, that's the only place they can find their hope. Imagine Jew and Arab being one. In Christ, they are. The promise was for all the nations. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is never to be limited to any single ethnic group, nation, or culture. Christ transcends all nations, all races, all cultures, all ethnic groups. Right? Christ is a priest for all people. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans. In Romans chapter 4, and he writes... For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, who is the father of us all. Now, if Abraham is the father of us all, and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, then Christ is a priest for all people. This is the gospel that can go to all nations. For by faith in Christ, we can all become children of Abraham. Christ is the way that supersedes all ways. Christ is the hope that supersedes all other hopes. Christ is the religion that supersedes all other religions, if you want to put it that way. He is the only way. Now, you and I both know that people don't like that exclusivity today, do they? People don't, that, that rubs people the wrong way. That Christ should supersede all other faiths and religions and hopes and dreams. He is the only one. That exclusive concept is abhorrent to many today. But it is what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. One writer used this analogy to respond to that Dislike of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, which we hear so much about today. He said, look, when he was a teenager, he said, the students in his high school were called together, and they were each given a little sugar cube with a pink syrup on it. It was serum that had been developed by Dr. Jonas Salk to keep us from getting polio, he said, in a time of a polio epidemic across the country. He said, now think about this. Did we all turn up our noses and say, I don't really think I want to avoid polio this way. I'm going to wait until another means is made possible. Or 
why should we only have one way to avoid polio? You know? I'm just going to not take this and I'm going to wait. Maybe there's a better way. I'll investigate, right? Well, if they did, they were in trouble because that was the only way. That's the sense in which we have to see what God has done for us in Christ. There's only one hope. Christ is a priest for all people, but you have to accept the forgiveness he offers, or it doesn't matter. Finally, Christ is a priest for all eternity. Verse 7. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. All right, the Levites were dying men who received tithes in the nation of Israel from other dying men. Melchizedek pictured a priest who remains alive. There's no record of his death. He lives on, at least in this story, because it is a story, to illustrate that there is a priest who lives forever. If there is a priest who lives forever, then there is a faith that lives forever, and there is a hope that lives forever. Our priest doesn't die, so our high priest can intercede for us when we sin because he's still alive. This is where the argument is headed in Hebrews chapter 7. So you go to Hebrews chapter 7 and and the end of the book, uh, the end of this uh, chapter, because this is where he's going with it all. And he says, And the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he... On the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So no matter what you've done, we have a high priest. And he lives forever. And he's able to intercede for you and bring his grace to bear to wipe it out and to cleanse it. He's the original sin eater. It's gone. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you face in life, we have a high priest who lives forever, right? And he intercedes for us. Even when, the Bible says, even when we are groanings, we, we, we don't even have words. We don't even know how to express our needs to God. We feel so much. We have a high priest, and he lives forever, and he intercedes when we cannot even talk for ourselves to God. For he lives forever. He is our high priest perpetually, permanently. See, we can be perfect forever because he lives forever, and he wipes out our sins. Even before we ask, he's already made provision for us, and he sustains us even before we ask, for he's already made provision for us in Jesus Christ. Max Lucado writes about a rather homely, I suppose, illustration of this, but he writes about 
how the bank sent him an overdraft notice on, his che on the checking account of one of his college daughters. She had overdrawn her checking account. He said he encourages his college-age girls, of course, to monitor their accounts, but they sometimes overspend. So he writes, what should I do? Send her an angry letter? Well, admonition might help her later, but it won't satisfy the bank now. Phone and tell her to make a deposit? Might as well tell a fish to fly. <laughs> I know her liquidity, zero. Transfer the money from my account to hers? Seemed to be the best option. After all, I had $25.37. I could replenish her account, and I could pay the overdraft fee as well. Since she calls me dad, I did what dads do. I covered my daughter's mistake. When I told her she was overdrawn, interesting you had to tell her, right? <laughs> She said she was sorry. Still, she offered no deposit. She was broke. She had one option. Dad, could you? Honey, I interrupted. I already have. I met her need before she knew she had one. Long before you knew you needed grace, your father did the same for you. He made an ample deposit. Before you need, knew you needed a savior, you had one. And when you ask him for mercy, he answers, Dear child, I've already given it. Whatever you face Tuesday, he's already deposited the sufficiency you need in him to face it. For Christ is sufficient to cover all of our mistakes, Christ is sufficient to cover all our deepest needs. Our high priest lives forever. He doesn't go off the scene. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't have to go off duty like the Levitical priests. He's always there for you and me. The fact that he rose again from the dead to live forever in heaven then changes our whole outlook on life. Wolfhard Pannenberg, a German theologian, once said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is, very it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you lived. See, there's the real rub, isn't it? If you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the rub is it has to change how you live. For us as Christians, that's a joy. Because we know that whatever we're going to face in the days ahead, it's changed forever by the fact that He's there in heaven caring for our needs and sustaining us, and His grace will carry us through. But for many, they don't want to change how they live to, to surrender to all of that. For in changing how they live, they then have to acknowledge a new Lord of their lives. That... We are not in control. He is as our high priest. And that's a problem, isn't it? It's Super Bowl Sunday. Tired of hearing about the Super Bowl yet? Well, many of us will likely gather tonight to watch the Super Bowl. 
which has really become sort of a collective American experience now. I plan on watching it too, so I'm not preaching against watching the Super Bowl, all right? Just relax. <laughs> if you thought that's where it was headed. But I do think this, that Christians ought to watch the Super Bowl differently than the rest of the world. Just like we do everything in this life differently than the rest of the world. We have a different outlook on life. Our faith changes how we live. Lawrence Taylor had a commercial last year which described the way many feel about football. Lawrence Taylor pitched a violent video game with the line, Every Sunday when America goes to church, we go to war. While they pray for salvation, we play for survival. As scenes of a football stadium are shown, Taylor says, this is our cathedral. An image of a football is shown. This game is our religion, he says. And then Taylor delivers the commercial's final line. And every religion has its judgment day. I was reading this week an article by a sports journalist. He was objecting to focus on the family's advertisement commercial, which you may have heard about that's going to be aired on the Super Bowl tonight, and I'm actually looking forward to watching this one. It's a, a commercial about Tim Tebow, the Heisman Trophy winner, and his mom, and they're just telling her story. She, when she was carrying Tim, she was advised to get an abortion. And she chose not to abort him, and of course the story he grew up. He became a Heisman Trophy winner, which is given to, uh, for the non-football fans here, which is given to the greatest college football player each year. He became the Heisman Trophy winner. And so Focus on the Family has, has actually paid millions of dollars to put this commercial onto the Super Bowl, uh, and this writer was objecting to that. And listen to what the writer said. He said in the article this week, this Sunday, he's talking about Super Bowl Sunday, this Sunday was the holiest day of the year for him. And such commercials like Tim Tebow's ruined his holiest day. Now, the high priesthood of football declares that Super Bowl is sacred. All the other commercials about beer, and women and parties don't mar the holiest day of the year for him. But a Super Bowl about family values and how a mom decided to carry her child and give birth to a child who later grew up to be Iceman Trophy winner and all of the values that went, that mars the holiest day of the year. Does that tell you something about values? See, a Christian can't have those kinds of values. That's diametrically opposed to all Christianity. That tells you how Christ's resurrection changes our outlook on life forever. We can watch the Super Bowl, but folks, we'd never consider it holy. We have a different value system because we value Christ. He is holy. Now my question is, do we value Christ like that? 
Antiques Roadshow is the most popular television program on PBS. The premise is simple. The country's leading auction houses join independent dealers to offer free appraisals of the antiques that people have sitting around in their homes. Well, Tim Chalice, uh, in his book, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, tells about an older man from Tucson, Arizona, who brought an old blanket in. He'd had this old blanket sitting on the back of, of a rocking chair in his bedroom for, for many years. He wondered if it had some value, so he brought it in to have it appraised. And the appraiser explained that the item was a Navajo chief's blanket that had been woven in the 1840s. Because of its rarity and significance, the appraiser had no trouble assigning a value of somewhere between $350,000 and $500,000 for this old blanket that has been sitting on the back of his rocking chair. The man walked out of the building that day with hired security guards on either side of him. He drove straight to the bank and he placed the blanket in a safe deposit box. What had been junk, a mere accent to an old rocking chair, had been instantly transformed into a precious treasure by that appraisal. Chalice goes on to offer this word of connection. When God saves his people, bringing us from death to life, he opens our eyes to love and appreciate the supreme treasure that is Jesus Christ. And yet I think so often, we Christians just sort of take it for granted, take him for granted. And Christ becomes like some old blanket, comfortable on the back of a chair not treasured at all. Do we treasure him? We go to church, yes, but do we treasure him with our everyday lives? Or dare we put Christ back on the rocking chair of the ordinary and the comfortable and the unimportant? Something we'll bring out when we need him. Father, we're sorry for how often we treat you, Lord Jesus, Father, your Son, as less than a treasure. And how often we value so many other things in this life, even maybe who wins a football game more than we express your value to us. Help us to remember that you, Lord Jesus, are the center of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Hymn number 185 is